Our reading today comes from the book of Jeremiah. In the fourth year of Judah's king Jehoiakim, Josiah's son, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write in it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the nations from the time of Josiah until today. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I intend to bring upon them, they will turn from their evil ways, and I will forgive their wrongdoing and sins. So Jeremiah sent for Baruch, Neriah's son. As Jeremiah dictated all the words that the Lord had spoken to him, Baruch wrote them in the scroll. Then Jeremiah told Baruch, I am confined here and cannot go to the Lord's temple. So you go to the temple on the next day of fasting and read the Lord's words from the scroll that I have dictated to you. Read them so that all the people in the temple can hear them, as well as all the Judeans who have come from their towns. If they turn from their evil ways, perhaps the Lord will hear their prayers. The Lord has threatened them with fierce anger. Baruch, Neriah's son, did everything the prophet Jeremiah instructed him. He read all the Lord's words from the scroll in the temple. The king sent Jehudi to take the scroll, and he retrieved it from the room of Elijah the scribe. Then Jehudi read it to the king and all his royal officials who were standing next to the king. Now it was the ninth month, and the king was staying in the winterized part of the palace with the fire pot burning near him. And whenever Jehudi read three or four columns of the scroll, the king would cut them off with a scribe's knife and throw them into the fire pot until the whole scroll was burned up. Neither the king nor any of his attendants who heard all these words were alarmed or tore their clothes. Elnathan, Delilah, and Jamara begged the king not to burn the scroll, but he wouldn't listen to them. The king commanded Jehermiel, the king's son, along with Sariah, Azrael's son, and Shelemiah, Abdil's son, to arrest the scribe Baruch and the prophet Jeremiah. But the Lord hid them. The Lord's word came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll containing the words written by Baruch at Jeremiah's dictation. Get another scroll and write in it all the words that were in the first scroll that Judah's king Jehoiakim burned. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. It won't be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant with me, even though I was their husband, declares the Lord. No, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my instructions within them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will no longer need to teach each other to say, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. Here ends the reading.
One of the things I find most interesting about Christianity today, and perhaps for a long time, not just today, is this idea of the new covenant. There have been many times in the history of the church where the text of the Bible has been used to other people, to create people, a group of people, and and consider them to be somehow outside of God's covenant. And usually when this is done, usually, not always, it's done with the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, the Torah, the prophets, this section of the Bible that we call the Old Testament. Often it's done with books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Often it's done with things that were originally designed to differentiate the people of Israel from the surrounding nations because the people of Israel were under a specific covenant with God. They were God's people. But as we read in Jeremiah, God proclaims that there will be a new covenant, a different covenant. And yet, the church, through all its days, seems to always be interested in pushing people away and making people um, them, us versus them. One of my favorite um, ministers is Clarence Jordan, who I've spoken about before. And Jordan was uh, unique in that he created a integrated community in the South of the U.S. during a time of heightened racial tensions. And he talks about how that came from his faith. And yet he also talks about how the local Baptist church kicked him out and kicked out all the members of his community when they brought somebody with them to church who the church members saw as other. The church members saw that he had brought in, brought a black man to service. Uh, in fact, it was someone from I from India, if I remember correctly. And they told him that this was not allowed and uh, they voted to remove him from the from the church from the congregation and he and and his wife who came uh, they were the ones that were members he and his wife who came they came to the vote and they voted with them they agreed that they should be removed <laughs> from the from the membership role because of this but the thing is that he uh he showed how the the church was using these words to to push people away, push people out. But he, through his own reading, his own understanding of the gospel, had come to the opposite conclusion, that God included everybody, and that nobody should be pushed out, pushed away. We see this now with inclusion of LGBTQ plus people in the church, in the life of the church. We see people who think that the Bible says that the love between two people of the same gender is wrong. That dressing 
outside of our own cultural gender norms is wrong. And yet most of the references, most of the so-called clobber verses that people point to for that come from the Old Testament. They come from parts of the Old Testament uh, that are called the purity codes or places that we're talking about ritual purity. And so it's always interesting because people point to these verses and yet they don't point to other verses in the same books that point out things that we take for granted today that uh, that were also considered to be impure, ritually impure, in the uh, in the ancient uh, in ancient Israel. And there are lots of books. There are books and sermons and things written on this. I'm not going to go into detail of them. I just want to point out the fact that people use those verses to condemn. And yet, in Jeremiah, we see this talk about the new covenant. So let's back up for a minute and let's look at the reading itself. So who is Jeremiah? Jeremiah is a prophet, and Jeremiah is uh, one of the the greater prophets um, in the Old Testament. And the book of Jeremiah is actually quite long, um, more than more than fifty chapters. Jeremiah is a prophet during a very important time in the history of Judah. He is prophesying during the time that Babylon first takes control of of Judah and then uh, sieges Jerusalem and sends everyone into exile. And so his prophecies are, are coming before, during, and after the exile. I mean, I guess technically his prophecies end at the moment of the exile, but um, people are reading them in the context of being in exile. First, God tells Jeremiah to go and tell the people what they've done wrong and get them to repent and turn back so that God can spare them. But they don't. And in fact, we see in our reading the most spectacular failure um, kind of the point of no return of this, when God finally tells Jeremiah, after many years of, of Jeremiah preaching to the people, God finally tells Jeremiah, get a scroll, write everything down, take the scroll to the temple and read it, and then leave the scroll there. That's, that's what happens. Baruch reads the scroll and the scroll is left. Um, Baruch runs um, because he's afraid of being uh, killed. And uh and hides and and the scroll is left in the temple with the scribes there and uh, given to the king and the king has the scroll read but as the scroll is read he cuts it up and throws it into the fire and burns it because he his contempt for jeremiah's prophecy is just so great he doesn't he doesn't believe anything that jeremiah is saying and this is the point when god begins to tell jeremiah to prophesy to the people about the destruction of Jerusalem um, and about uh, life under Babylonian rule. And during this period, period where the king is cutting up the scroll, this is a period where Babylon has already come to rule the area and has already sent some people into exile, but this is kind of in between when Babylon first kind of takes control and when they, they finally come in and 
and um, destroy the city. And there are lots of there are lots of people in this time who are who are prophesying, and some of them are saying that they should they should uh, fight back against the Babylonians that the, the, the Babylon will be destroyed and that uh, Jerusalem will be will be fine and everyone will be returned and it'll be great. But what Jeremiah says to the people, what God tells Jeremiah to say to the people is to accept the reality of their exile into Babylon, to settle down, to, to start families, to have children, to, to find, uh, uh, spouses for their children to uh, be good citizens of the land that they're being sent into exile in because God plans to leave them there until Babylon is no more, which is of course what happens. Um, in the end, um, Babylon falls to the Persians and um, the Persians later come through and, and uh, send people back to Jerusalem. But the important thing here is, is that that message was not one that was very well liked by the king and others around him who wanted to kind of throw off the yoke of, of Babylon. So Jeremiah made a lot of enemies, political enemies. And in fact, on more than one occasion, um, they threatened to, to kill him. Uh, and in fact, he's, he's, I, I believe he's under arrest when, when Baruch, when he when he quotes these things to Baruch, that's why he tells Baruch, "I can't leave here because he's under arrest." So he sends Baruch in his place. So um, Jeremiah had a very difficult time. The book itself is interesting in that, in its current form, it was written really for the survivors of the exile. There was a war, there was a siege, there was death and destruction. The city was burned. And the people were carried off into exile, and some fled to Egypt. And so the book is being read in the context of the survivors of this catastrophe. And they're trying to understand. They're trying to understand how God could allow this to happen. They're trying to understand how, considering the covenant that God has made with them as God's people, how God allowed them to be carried away from the promised land, from the land that God had promised to them, how God allowed them to experience the horrors of war and exile and what they were supposed to do now that they were so distant from their homeland. What were they, how are they going to live? How are they going to, to, um, to continue forward? What did it mean to worship Yahweh, to worship the God of, of Israel when you weren't in Israel, when you didn't have access to the temple anymore. And Jeremiah is very long. And in, and in the book of Jeremiah, we see kind of three different takes on this idea. This idea, by the way, how, how does God allow evil in the world? The, the name of this uh, in, in kind of academic uh, uh, research is called theodicy. Theodicy. How, how does uh, uh, how does God allow evil? Why does God allow evil? And Jeremiah has kind of three different takes on this. In in uh, kind of the the most shallow reading of the of the text, what we see is Jeremiah telling the people that it's their fault, that they have they have fallen away 
from God's commandments. They have been worshiping other gods. They have been doing the things that God told them not to do. Both the people and more, perhaps more importantly, the leaders, the kings of, of Judah. And so God has come in and has um, destroyed Jerusalem because of their actions. But there's a second reading. There are other, there are other passages where, where Jeremiah says that this is really all part of God's plan, that God builds up and tears down. God, God plants and, and um, harvests and, and destroys and creates over and over as part of God's larger plan because God has uh, a, long, a longer vision than we do and understands things in a, in a more big picture way than we can possibly do. We can possibly understand them. And the third set of writings talks about um, this idea that the, the horrors of war and the, the violence and the terrible things that the people um, had to experience were not really from God at all. That, that, that God, there, there are some readings in here where God is kind of removed from this, and it's about the Babylonians and the, and the people more. And I think these are probably the three main um, takes on theodicy. And it's interesting to see people really dealing with this, really grappling with this question uh, so far back in history. And yet we've, we've come up with basically the same kind of answers. <laughs> Either we did something wrong and God is punishing us for what we've done. Or it's all part of God's plan and we just can't see the plan. And so we can't appreciate how this horrible thing that's happening to us is actually for our own good or for the good of the community as a whole. Or the evil has nothing to do with God. And the evil is our own creation or is, you know, uh, in some readings created by Satan or by another another being. Um, but is what, and for whatever reason, it is not from God. And I think as Christians, we we often kind of hold these three ideas in um, intention with one another. Sometimes we want to say that our actions, because our, our actions lead to, to results. Uh, in the American, um, in the American uh, uh, psyche at the moment, I think is this idea of karma, which most Americans don't understand in its original context, but they think of this idea of if I do something good, that something good happens to me. If I do something bad, that something bad happens to me. And this was very much the idea of the temple priests in Second Temple um, Judaism too. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of stuff in here is like that. The the king did something bad, and so the, the people did something bad, and so the city was destroyed. Um, but I think that uh, that I think that it is important because it's. It's still important to understand there are consequences to your actions. One of the things people kind of say about universalism, Christian universalism, is that you get off scot-free, that there are no consequences to your actions. And we, we, will, we definitely say that's not true. Um, there are definitely consequences to your actions. There's definitely a time of, of um, correction for everybody. And so I don't want to get rid of this idea completely. But at the same time, I think that often thinking about what did I do wrong that led to this it's just not always helpful. And there are, you know, if we turn and think about what's going on right now in the world, COVID-19 and 
the uh, the pandemic and all of the death and sickness and um, economic disaster that we've seen in the world because of it, we have these same questions that I see that the the Judeans had in exile in Babylon. How would God allow this to happen to us? And I certainly don't think it's because society is not living up to God's laws. <laughs> there are certainly Christians who think this, um, you know, the most, most uh, spectacularly, I guess, um, the Westboro Baptist Church, which I, you know, I use Christianity in a very wide context here when I speak of them. I don't, I don't think they're really a church. I think they're much more of a cult, um, especially considering the composition of them and whatnot. But nonetheless, this is kind of what they believe, that the people of are, are not living up to God's commandments, and so all this horrible stuff is going to happen. But I just don't, I don't believe that. The second thing it could be is it could be part of God's larger plan. And this is an idea that is often someone's first response when they are confronted with real pain or misery. So when someone approaches them, especially a believer, and says, I just can't understand why this is happening to me. I don't understand. I don't understand why my grandfather died of COVID-19. He we took all the precautions. We we did out, we did everything we were supposed to do. And yet, you know, he died because because a, you know, a single person, a, you know, a, a caregiver um, was sick and didn't know it. Right? Why would God do this to me? Right? And sometimes our first answer can be, well, it's all part of God's plan. and We can't know what that is, but we have to have faith in God. But that is not a helpful thing to say to somebody in that situation. <laughs> Most times. Most times that is not helpful. Um, because what does that mean? You know, what does it mean? How That means that God needed this person to die of this disease? Why? I think the third option um, is really the best one. This evil does not come from God. Sometimes bad things happen. And it sucks. There's nothing we can do about it. There's no way we can get around it. But it didn't happen because of our failure. And it didn't happen because it's part of a larger plan. It just happened. Some of it, in a much kind of bigger, more systemic way, is because of our failure, you could say. I mean, the reason why the pandemic is so bad is because lots of little failures, lots of little problems. You know, we have 1.5 million people dead worldwide from this pandemic. And of those, one out of six are in the United States. More than 250,000 people dead. And considering the population density of the United States compared to other countries that have had problems with the, with the pandemic, we did something wrong, right? So in a big picture, systematic kind of way, yes, 
there it's a kind of you know we did something we didn't do everything we could do to, to prevent it but it's not because gay people are getting married and it's not because uh you know there's rampant atheism in the country and it's you know the, the you know it, it's not as pat robertson obviously option uh often says, you know, these all the hurricanes are because, you know, because of the gays <laughs> or whatever. I mean, that's just that that's just not how God works in my in my opinion. Um and of course you may dis- disagree with me and that's fine, but um I can't imagine a God uh, who works like that, who would who would harm millions of innocent people uh, because of the the actions of a small component of a society i just don't i just don't believe that so uh, we see in jeremiah the same these same questions and we have them today i think that you know this is a text that i haven't read very very much of i've read bits and pieces of it but not really the whole text but in preparation for the sermon this week i I sat and read a large chunk of the book and um it just struck me it struck me how how meaningful the text was given our current situation how similar it is now like how how similar we are now to the judeans in exile in babylon away from our homes away from our families not allowed to do the things we want to do not allowed to worship perhaps in the way we want to worship we can't get together we have to wear masks we have to listen to what we're being told by the scientists and those who, who are trying to keep us safe. And it sucks. And yet, what God tells Jeremiah is, you just have to settle in. You have to make a family, make a life, give to the city that you're in. God says, because when Babylon has had their 70 years, they'll be over. And the people will return to Jerusalem. And the 70 years here meant a lifetime. In their case, it meant some non-specific long amount of time. And I feel like COVID is very similar. You know, luckily, it won't be 70 years. <laughs> but it will probably be another year. And we have to learn to live with it in a very real in a very real way change our lives in a very real way just like the judeans had to learn to live in exile in babylon and change their faith and find new ways to worship god in that environment just as we are finding new ways but the the final message of jeremiah is hope all of this pain all of this suffering all of this uh, evil has happened, but there's hope that when this is over, the people will return. And that in the meantime, the community will continue to exist. The community will continue to move forward. And that's what we have now too. And that ends kind of with this idea of the new covenant. And this, this reading from Jeremiah about the new covenant is very important because uh, to Christianity, because it's quoted in the in the New Testament, and actually, the New Testament, all by it, you know, the 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 
that section of the Bible that we call the New Testament is called the New Testament because of this passage talking about the new covenant. And Jesus talks about how he is bringing the new covenant. In our Eucharist service, we talk about the new covenant in Jesus's blood. And so for Christians, the new covenant is very important because it, it is through the new covenant that those outside of the tribes of Israel, that the rest of the nations are brought into, reconcil- into reconciliation with God. Um, the Jewish people, of course, are as well. They're you know, continue, but everybody, uh, you know, everybody is, is brought in. And, you know, it says in the reading, even, it says that. It says, I will put my instructions within them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people they will no longer need to teach each other to say, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wrongdoings and never again remember their sins. This is the real good news, is the universalism of the new covenant. This idea that all are welcome, all are forgiven, all are reconciled with God. And that's our hope. That's our hope as Christians, is to remember that we will all be reconciled with God no matter what happens in this life. Of course, we also have so much hope in this life. (laughs) We don't want to be a people only looking forward to death, of course, but there's so much hope in this life. We have so much hope going forward for things to improve. We see things beginning to turn as far as the pandemic is concerned. We see vaccines being tested. We see um, governments taking things more seriously. We see hope at the end of the pain, but there's still a lot of pain to go through, just as the Judeans had a lot of pain to go through as they were as they found themselves in exile in Babylon. So, as we move forward, the reason why that I think this reading comes here is because we're we're moving forward into Advent, into the season before we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And the season of Advent is the the um, the waiting, the season of waiting for the Messiah to appear, waiting for Jesus to come. And so this reading is here because it shows the first glimpse of that hope that God will create a new covenant, that God will bring a new leader from the line of David. And through that new leader, this new covenant will come into being. And as we go on through Advent for the next four Sundays, um, we'll, be, we'll move towards that hope, um, the hope that is, is Jesus. But for now, I hope that we all have hope in the now, in the present. Remember that I know it sucks not being able to see your fa- your family. Trust me, as someone who lives on the other side of the world for my family, I get it. I had really hoped to go back to the U.S. long before now to see my family, but instead, Zoom is all I have. <laughs> and that's okay. I hope that everyone stays safe this Thanksgiving holiday in the U.S.,
and through the Christmas holidays and all the family gatherings we would normally have. I hope that everyone stays safe. Instead of focusing on the horrors of now, how God could do this to us now, try to stay focused on the hope of what is yet to come, the hope that we are going to move through this and that we're going to be okay as a community together, a community focused on hope, a community focused on the reconciliation of the world.